I know so many of you joined us for our outdoor service, our first ever outdoor service in Harvey Field last week, and that was an adventure. And, uh, and, uh, and we didn't really have anything to lose because we, we weren't allowed to meet here anyways, but uh, uh, it was cool to see so many people from the community, so many people who, uh, who have actually never even been to Pursuit, who just heard that there was a, a, a crazy church that was gonna take over to Airfield and hold a service, and so that was fun. And uh, it was a lot of work. In fact, that Saturday night prior to the service, the flood was just about the field was just about flooded. The standing water everywhere. It rained, rained, rained that whole day. And uh, by the time we had service on Sunday, we had like a 90-minute window uh, from 11 to 12:30 of our service where it didn't rain. And so we were thankful for that. And uh, it was just cool. It was just cool to be able to to see everyone, even if it was in their cars. I know some of you were cheating, getting out and saying hi to people, but. Uh, I won't report you to Jay Inslee, okay? So anyways, or I might, I might. If, if you're not nice, I might. But let me begin uh, this sermon this morning with a disclaimer, uh, and, and then I'm going to talk about some ground rules. Uh, and then I'm going to preach my heart out, and uh, then at 1 p.m. I'm going to pray, and we're going to march to City Hall, and we're going to pray for this city. I, 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 don't say, uh, I, I don't say prayer changes things as some sort of like cliche spiritual statement to not get you to do other stuff. I really believe that prayer changes the course of history. When Jonah was a prophet and got sent to Nineveh, some of you remember that story, and he didn't want to go. He got swallowed up by a whale, finally listened to the voice of God and went to Nineveh. He said, listen, God is going to put judgment on this city if you don't pray and repent. And in a moment, the king and the people, in repentance and in prayer, humbled themselves to the Lord. There was a revival in the city, and God put grace and mercy instead of judgment on Nineveh. So when we say prayer changes things, it's not like this cute Christian statement. No, when we pray, dead things come to life. When we pray, things that have been in the grave are now out of the grave. When we pray, sickness disappears. When we pray, minds clear up. When we pray, city leadership, when the church prays. I think the problem is we've been so distracted debating people on social media that we forgot that our primary job is to pray. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have ever had your mind changed by debating somebody on social media? Great. Look around. No one. It don't mean that you can't ever confess an opinion. I've got opinions too. But my opinions don't change the world. Jesus does. And so if we are known for having the loudest opinion instead of the most confident trust in the Lord, then let's not complain that the city is in shambles. We've got to be a church that prays. Either we believe in prayer or not. Yeah, you know, I'm so convicted that when the disciples met with Jesus, they didn't ask him to teach them how to do miracles. They didn't ask him to teach them how to preach and teach prophetically. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. And what follows is life-changing dialogue with the Father that literally disrupts all of human history. And from the first century onward, they said these Christians turn cities upside down. Maybe we could be that type of church. Maybe. Or maybe not. Here's my disclaimer. I will not talk perfectly about this issue. In fact, no one will. 
But if we are scared to even have the conversation because someone might call us racist, socialist, too liberal, too Republican, then in my estimation, we have already lost the moral courage to lead. Just this week, I've received death threats, threats to burn down this church, angry phone calls, emails, social media attacks. And I'd like to report, I'm still here, the church is still open, and the gospel is unhindered. Let me lay five ground rules for today's sermon. Now, I don't think I've ever issued ground rules before, but, but let me help frame the conversation this morning. Because if these are not ground rules that you can get behind, then this is probably not the sermon for you. It might not be the church for you. But today, I, I want to establish a frame of reference so that we can properly contextualize today's topic, this cultural moment, and most importantly, the words of Jesus. Rule number one, I will not be offended. Hear me. Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. I'm not talking about offense in, in the sense that if somebody does or says or acts in a way that is blatantly offensive, that you just have to cover it up and pretend it's cool. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that thing that rises up inside of us when somebody says something that isn't exactly the way that we would say it. And so instead of having ears to hear or eyes to see, we allow offense to build walls in our heart. And then we walk away and go, well, I didn't get anything out of today's sermon. Well, it wasn't because I wasn't preaching. It's because you wasn't listening. And when you become offended, you block your ability to receive from God. Do you know that God will often offend your flesh to get to your heart? He does it all the time in scripture. <laughs> but the thing is, we built a God in our image or in our theoretical image. A God who always says what we want to hear, who hates the people we hate and loves the people we love and votes exactly the way that we vote. And anytime somebody challenges our preconceived idea or notion about the idol we've built in his image, we get offended. That's why some of us can't stay in churches longer than six weeks. That's why some of us can't stay in marriages longer than 18 months. That's why some of us can't stay in relationships longer than six weeks. Because as soon as we get offended, instead of engaging in conversation to learn and develop, we pack up and move somewhere else. And my communication for you this morning is that being offended is a normal, naturally reoccurring part of the developmental process. And unless we could trust people in our lives to say difficult things, you might be a year older, but you won't be any years wiser. Number two, I will accept the fact that the way I have previously seen things may not always be accurate. Meaning this, that the day that you stop learning, the day that you stop growing, and, and the day that you stop potentially believing that somebody else might offer another valuable perspective that you previously haven't understood, the day that you stop believing those things is the day you begin to die. And so for us, we want to be constant learners, constant engagers. That's why Paul says, I am saved and I am being saved. We are engaging in the ongoing transformational process of following Christ, which means we are always open to seeing things in a new light. Number three, I will not gloss over the pain that other people feel 
in order to confirm my political bias. I won't hit the fast forward button on somebody else's story so that I can reach a conclusion that I've already committed to in my heart. Number four, I'll make a choice to hear the heart of my pastor instead of looking for things to criticize so that I can appear woke. Number five, I will most of all allow my life to be influenced by Jesus Christ and his word. I was in Snohomish on Monday night. I was walking down uh, First Street and praying. And As many of you know, Snohomish hasn't just made the news. It's made national news this week. <laughs> I have friends in other states texting me saying, is your city burning down? We're seeing it trending on social media. We're hearing about it on CNN. What's happening in Snohomish? And I, I saw an interaction on First Street last Monday night that I wanted to convey to you today because I think it helps capture the moment we're in. And there was a group of protesters uh, waving signs that said, Black Lives Matter. And they were standing on one corner, and, 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 and on, on the other corner, opposite them, was, was another group of individuals. And, and they didn't have signs, but every time that group chanted, Black Lives Matter, this group chanted, All Lives Matter. And they were yelling at each other. Uh, for five or ten minutes back and forth, and you, you know what it's like. Eventually, you run out of voice to yell. And, and, and eventually, uh, even after preaching for, for 25 or 35 minutes, even for me, and I don't try to yell the whole time, I do get excited, but even for me, I start to feel it in, in my voice. And so I'm a professional people watcher, and so I'm watching these interactions happen on, on one side of the block and, 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 and on the other side of the block. And, 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 and finally, uh, one of these guys with, with his, maybe his last gasping breath said as loud as he can, Black Lives Matter. And this other guy yelled back, he said, All Lives Matter. And this guy finally responded. He said, well, black lives, or he, excuse me, he said, well, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. The guy who was over here yelling, he said, well, I, I, I can see what you're saying. I think I agree with that. <laughs> this guy over here, he yelled back. He said, then why are we yelling at each other? <laughs> this guy over here said, I'm not sure. And God is my witness. I watched them walk to the middle of the intersection and have a conversation together. And I thought to myself, if anything best captures the moment we're in, it's that. Now, let me say some things. I believe black lives matter. Unequivocally, full stop. Not because other lives don't. But because until we can ensure that all people are treated equally in our society, it creates an imbalance that threatens the livelihood of the most vulnerable. Friends, when we say save the whales, we don't mean screw the other fish. <laughs> we mean we're focusing right now on whales. Some of us, if we was at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would have said, blessed are the poor. And we would have said, Jesus, blessed are all people. <laughs> Hear me. Hear my heart. I haven't and likely won't ever experience the same types of things that have triggered these protests. 
But if tens of thousands of our neighbors are saying that they have experienced them, then how long will it be until we believe them? I know there is confusion about the statement Black Lives Matter because it is also the name of a political organization that supports a lot of things that I do not. I am not pro-abortion, I am not anti-police, I am not anti-nuclear family. But don't let the narrative confuse you. Our country can and must deal with systematic racial injustice. There has been change in the right direction, but there is more that needs to be done. I will begin this morning by reading to you out of the book of Ephesians chapter 2. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is addressing this. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation this morning because I think it helps illustrate this point well. Our reconciling peace is Jesus. He has made Jew and non-Jew one in Christ. By dying as our sacrifice, he has broken down every wall of prejudice that separated us and has now made us equal through our union with Christ. Now, ethnic, ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of his precious body on the cross. The legal code that stood condemning every one of us has now been repealed by his command. See, his triune essence has made peace between us by starting over, forming one new race of humanity, Jews and non-Jews fused together. And friend, why is it important for the church to stand against governmental injustice? Because we ought to treat our neighbor as ourselves. And if you wouldn't want to be unfairly targeted or profiled or disadvantaged, you should stand up for people who experience that. Do you ever wonder where the word Protestant comes from? Protest. I mean, today, you and I enjoy the benefit of the Protestant Reformation. Many who paid with their lives to separate from, at that time, a corrupt Catholic religious system. And today we are Protestant Christians because Martin Luther stood up somewhere at some point on some day and said, I've had enough. So not only do we affirm and protect the constitutional right of people to gather and, and, and protest as a spiritual community, we have enjoyed that benefit as well. And I don't support hurting businesses and burning things down and those types of things, but I'm not gonna allow a few bad actors to paint an entire group. And let me say, neither should you allow two or three racists on First Avenue to paint an entire city. We've seen some of that this week. If we were identified only by the worst people in our neighborhoods, can you imagine how miserable society would be? The problem is, is we've lost the art of sacred conversation. We've lost the ability to extend sacred charity to one another, to think charitably about each other's positions. Racism is real, it's deadly, and it must be confronted. My friend Moses says it this way, racism is evil because it dehumanizes both the perpetrator and the subject. And if it's true that Jesus is Lord in every environment, then our involvement in issues of justice is paramount. I don't mean that the church becomes political. I mean that we recognize both the influence 
and responsibility to be agents of change in our world. We are not passive observers of the culture around us. The cause of Christ compels our involvement. Seems like for the last 10 or 20 years, all I've heard people say is, well, the church shouldn't be involved in politics. Yeah, look where that has led us. No, I ain't going to endorse candidates on stage. That's not my job. No, I ain't going to be up here and align with parties and think, no, 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 that's not my job. But if we can't disciple people to engage in Christ-honoring ways in our society, then what are we even doing? And so part of this process of being a part of a church, but more importantly, being submitted to the lordship of Jesus is this idea that your worldview is under constant development until the day that you die. But my concern is some Christians operate as if they've got it all figured out. Well, I have been 100% developed by Jesus. Please let us know how that works out. No, you, you, the reason why you're transformed into something new when you get to heaven is because that ongoing iterative process is lifelong. And the day that you stop growing and learning and developing and being made new is the day that you begin to take the position of God in your own life. And let me say this again. If God hates all the people you hate, loves all the people you love, and reinforces all of the preconceived ideas and notions you have, then the God that you worship is you. Yeah. And so we just got to make a decision who we going to worship. Because this Jesus is a little more controversial and nuanced and, 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 and one who both injects himself in culture but also supersedes the destructive tribalistic narrative of his day. It, it, this Jesus we could learn a lot from. Miles McPherson, a, a black pastor from San Diego, he wrote a book in 2018 called The Third Option. A few nights ago he was on Anderson Cooper's TV show on, on, on CNN, and he made these observations. He said, we live in an us versus them culture. Either we support the police or we support the protesters. Either we support the riot or we support the status quo. Either we support the government or we support anarchy. Either we support the shutdown or, or we support everyone getting sick and, and everyone's grandma dying because we don't care about anybody's health. And McPherson argues for the third option. He said the third option is that we honor what we have in common. What are the things we have in common? Number one, the fact that we're all made in the image of God. Number two, the fact that no person is beyond redemption. Number three, the fact that every individual has a worth that has been established by the cross. Number four, the fact that we're all in this together. Friend, we're not in different boats. You know that, right? Like whether you're the hardest core Republican or the hardest core Democrat, you know we're all in the same boat. And if the boat goes down, your political tribe isn't saving you. And so we can either get serious about praying for this city and for this nation, that God would do what he does best and works on people's hearts, or we could throw rocks at each other until the whole boat sinks. 
until we finally wake up. Here's the reality. We all have blind spots. And blind spots are the difference between your intent and the impact of what you do. And see, our responsibility is to cultivate relationships with people who can help us be aware of our blind spots. Friends, it's not us versus them. It's a united church versus a divisive enemy. Watch what a united church has done. Some of the first hospitals in the United States were the result of Methodist churches leading the way on justice. Why? Because they were convicted that people deserved quality medical care. Our university system, guess what? The result of the church leading the charge on education. And I know that universities have drifted far from their Christian roots today, but the impetus for education reform was always led by the church. Orphanages, adoption agencies, and the like, the result of the church advocating on behalf of the nuclear family. The world's first animal welfare charity group started in England in the 1820s by William Wilberforce. It was the result of Christians who believed in the ethical treatment of animals. The abolitionist movement in the 1830s, the result of the church advocating on behalf of the slave. The child labor reform movement in the late 1890s, the result of clergymen in Alabama leading the fight for social change. The civil rights movement of the 1960s, the result of clergymen in the South, most notably Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. leading the charge for racial justice. There has been change in the right direction, but there is more that needs to be done. Now watch what Jesus says in John 13 and in verse 35. I'll read it to you out of the message translation today. Some of you are familiar. Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way that I've loved you, love one another. And this is how the world will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love that you have for each other. Now, this ain't just some cliche spiritual thing that we quote every once in a while because like, hey, we just got to love. I want you to watch what Jesus is saying. He's saying the world, the outside, will know that you belong to me by the way you love one another on the inside. Which means this, if we can't figure it out here, there's no hope for out there. But we're too busy believing the worst about people we go to church with. And then we complain that cities are on fire. And if we could just learn to love one another like Jesus loved us, it would transform the world. Well, what about that person who has a different political opinion than me? Jesus treated Judas better than we treat one another. On the night he was betrayed, he washed their feet and broke bread. Well, I don't think I can be friends with somebody who doesn't retweet my hashtag. Friends, hashtags don't change the world. Jesus does. And I'm almost sending all the hashtags too. I'm with you. Let's engage in social media. 
But as soon as we begin to believe the worst instead of the best, you're not doing the work of wokeness, you're doing the work of the devil. I got to make a choice to love people who I interact with. It's easy to love people when you visit them on a mission trip once every 24 months. Hear me. It's easy to love people halfway across the world. It's easy to love that orphan that you sponsor, and we should sponsor orphans. I believe in that. I'm not diminishing any of this. I'm saying it's easy to love people you don't have to interact with. It's harder to love people that disappoint you. It's harder to love people who say mean things about you. It's harder to love people that you got to see on a regular basis. It's harder to love people in practice than it is in theory. And you got to make a decision in this community that as you ingratiate yourself to the work of the Lord and as you engage in the transformative and sacred work of doing this together, you're going to stand next to people who have different opinions than you. You're going to stand next to people who express them in different ways. And you're going to have to make a choice at the end of the day, will I love them like Jesus did? But what about this? And, and what about that? And, and what about what this person said and that person said? Friend, we have been more discipled by social media than we have by the word of God. We have allowed CNN and Fox News to disciple our worldview, and we wonder why the world doesn't think the church loves each other. Maybe we ought to take a step back from fighting online and maybe, just maybe, love people the way that Jesus loved them. Well, I love the world. I get you love the world. Awesome. We can pray for that all day. It's easy to love people in theory. How many of you were better husbands or wives before you got married? Oh, just me? How many of you were better moms or dads before you had kids? Oh, just me? You see what I mean? It's easy to develop a theory about what love looks like. And then all of a sudden, you got to interact with somebody on a daily basis for the rest of your life. And you've got to make a choice. I'm going to love you like Jesus did. Friends, that's my encouragement for you as we search the scriptures together. Friend, if we lose the battle for unity, hear me, it doesn't matter what else we fight for. I've seen white progressives call black conservatives white supremacists because they don't share the same political opinion as them. I've seen white conservatives tell black progressives that they don't understand racism. Can we just be honest for a minute? We don't really want to hear other people's opinions. We want to hear our opinion coming out of their mouth. And if you and I could step back from the reactive edge, immerse ourselves in a Christological worldview, I think we would see that not only does Jesus have a lot to say about justice and peace, but that he modeled it in such a way that it transformed the world. I saw somebody say this this week. Social media is a reverse confessional where we demand repentance for other people's sins. <laughs> You know, almost all the research agrees. 
The number one way that you can combat racism in your own life is to lead a diverse life. You know why? Because it's hard to stereotype people you're friends with. This week, New York Times released an op-ed instructing individuals to excommunicate their friends and family if they don't support certain political movements or donate to certain political causes. Let me be clear, this type of thinking is demonic. The idea that unless you share my post, retweet my tag, or support my specific political organization, we can't have relationship or dialogue is one of the reasons we are in this mess. It's a descent into political tribalism that reinforces an us versus them narrative. It creates enemies instead of allies. It creates fights instead of friendships. And it creates most of all petulant virtue signaling absolutely devoid of structural change. We must and can disciple people out of racism without capitulating to the identity politics that plague our society today. Let me say one more thing and then I'm going to preach. <laughs> Peace without justice is unattainable. Peace without justice is unattainable. But justice without peace is unsustainable. So why are we doing a march for justice and peace? Because justice is how he rules, but peace is who he is. And if we want long-lasting social change, we're going to need both. See, sometimes when people get too rowdy in the streets, you have one tribe that says, we just need peace. Everybody just needs to chill out. And then you have people who are want to chill out, and you got another crowd that goes, no, we need justice. When you look at the person of Jesus, he incorporates both. He rules with justice, and he doesn't just offer peace, he is peace himself. Yeah. And friends, we need both in our world today. True justice will create authentic peace. And true peace will sustain authentic justice. The world says, no justice, no peace. I've got good news. Jesus offers both. Let me give you the first point this morning. Psalms 45. I want you to watch what David says about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the most talked about topic in the New Testament. It is the rule and the reign and the influence of Jesus both in our lives and all throughout society. The kingdom of God is here and it is also growing exponentially as his glory fills the whole earth. Now watch what David, a prophetic picture or type of Christ says about the kingdom. Your throat, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. David might use some language there that, that confuses you, so, so let me for a moment explain. Scepter is like an ornate staff. 
It was used by kings and royalty to denote sovereignty. It could be used as a weapon, but it was more often used in the issuing of decrees. You see, a scepter talked about in the book of Esther. When the king's scepter was extended to Esther, she knew she had an audience with the king, the most powerful person on earth. When the king's scepter was extended, it was an establishment of precedent and law, for he who held the scepter ruled the nation. See, Christ rules in justice, which means this. His lordship is inseparable from the biblical concept of justice. Justice is not revenge. It is not political. It is adjudication of what is right versus what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Hear me, friend. God is not anti-government, but he is anti-injustice. And where there is injustice, you will find an invitation from God to partner in change. I think sometimes when we want God to use us, we become very like free will oriented. And then when we want God to take care of things that we don't want to involve ourselves with, we become very sovereign oriented. Like, well, only God can fix that. So <laughs> here it is, God. There's a big problem. It's like we become like the religious folks passing the man who'd been abused on, on the side of the road. Well, if God wanted to heal him, he would. Well, if God wanted to take care of it. But then we get into another environment, and we really want us to be in a specific position that we like, and we're over here, God, use me. God, send me. God, I'm your number one fan. I want to be there when it happens. And can, I, can I tell you that the fullness of both free will and sovereignty is found in, in the person of Christ? These are not competing tensions. They are part of the character of the unfolding mystery or, or multifaceted nature of who Jesus is. Yes, does God hold the nations in his hand? Yes. Does he appoint kings and also dismiss them? Yes. But does he also invite the church to partner and change? Absolutely. So the next time that you feel like you can't do anything about it and you just want God to take care of it, honestly, check your heart. And the next time that you just want God to, to, uh, to, to use you and, and, and God, here am I and I'm your number one fan and it's got to be me, check your heart. Because it could be that there are things in your life that you rather not engage because they're too messy or they're too difficult or they confront individual biases that you might have. That God is asking you to go on a journey with that he might get to the center of your heart. Friend, we are in lifelong development. Never forget it. Probably 20 years ago, my family took a, took a vacation, a trip to uh, Florida. We were there for uh, probably two weeks or so, and, and, and I'll never forget a moment that happened on that trip, and I, I wanted to convey it to you this morning. I've never shared this story publicly. And um, I think it represents this idea, not that justice ends here, but that justice starts here. But we were in a, in a fast food restaurant, and uh, we had placed our order, and there was a man in front of us with his wife, and they had placed their order as well. And so we were standing in the lobby, and it was a busy night, and it was in a predominantly African-American community, and the staff of this fast food restaurant was predominantly African-American, and, and we were standing there waiting for our fast food order. And you know what it's like when you go to fast food? Every time you do, it's like a roll of the dice. This is either going to be the best meal of my day or the worst meal of my life. You know, it's, like, it's just always like that. Did they get it wrong? Did they send me the wrong fries? Did they forget this? Did they add cheese when I told them not to? It's just, that's always the gamble that you play. 
And so we're waiting to get our food, and, and I notice a, a, a young African-American man, and he, he's picking up the food, and he's taking it out, and he, and he gives it to the guy in front of us. And that guy opens the bag like you do, and, and is checking through and, and making sure everything is right. And lo and behold, shocker, the order is wrong, because it's, it's fast food. And instead of saying, hey, look, the order's wrong, uh, let me send it back, look, it's got to be made right, I already paid for it, but can we fix this, please? Crowded restaurant. This guy in a loud voice turns around and says this. Well, this is why blacks don't work for NASA. And standing right behind him was my parents. And I'll never forget, my mom looked at him and she said, that's not what we believe. I don't share that to somehow go, look how woke we are. <laughs> But to communicate to you this idea, that's where justice starts. See, it starts in your home. It starts in conversations with your kids. We want everybody else to act justly for us, but refuse to take responsibility for justice ourselves. We want government institutions and educational organizations and nonprofit corporations to do the work of justice for us. But friend, justice starts in here. Justice starts with you. Justice starts with your discipleship. Justice starts with your development. We make commitments. I'm gonna treat people like Jesus would. I'm gonna see people like Jesus would. And I'm gonna love people like Jesus would. You know why it's so important for you to see color? Because if you don't see color, you won't recognize patterns. Hear me. Sometimes in an attempt, and I know what people mean when they say they don't see color, they're meaning that they don't, they don't make racial prejudice calls or things like that. But we don't recognize color, then we're not able to sympathize or empathize with the plight of people who feel unfairly targeted by government institutions. I'm not asking you to get involved in the political debate. I'm just saying for us, we don't hide from diversity. We don't hide from ethnicity. We don't try to pretend that everybody looks the same or sounds the same. What we're communicating is that diversity and ethnicity isn't a weakness for the church, it's a strength for the church. It's what brings so much glory to God. Around the throne, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is represented. You know, you lose a lot of things when you go to heaven. You lose your pain, your sickness, your dysfunction, your sadness, your depression. You know what you don't lose? Your ethnicity. You don't lose your skin color. You don't lose the pattern of your hair. You don't lose the tone of your speech. Why? Because diversity doesn't threaten God. It actually brings him glory. Can you imagine what heaven will be like? Day and night, they'll be singing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And every tribe, every dialect, every tongue will be joining in that song. I think it'll be like the day of Pentecost. Every person will hear the wonderful works of God declared in their own language. 
See, diversity isn't a threat. Ethnicity isn't a threat. It's what brings glory to God. Let me end here this morning. My second point is this. Peace is who Jesus is. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's not just what he gives, it's who he is. And remember what scripture says, friend, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. It says blessed are the peacemakers, which means that we have a role in our world today to make peace. And how do you make peace? There is a spiritual part. Everything starts and ends there. But then there is a practical part as well where you commit as an individual to be a person of justice, a person of fairness, and a person of racial equity. I know that this sometimes confronts long-held notions that some of us have had. We want to be a church that changes the world. We've got to be a people who love not through the lens of our whiteness or our blackness, but through the lens of a wounded lamb who at the center of the universe compels the worship of the nations. He rules in justice, and yet he is peace. Peace isn't made through an argument because you can't argue with a spirit anyways. Peace is made by accepting these truths in tension. Truth number one, things aren't as they should be. Truth number two, I can do something about it. Truth number three, Jesus has the final say. Friend, this world will not be made perfect prior to the return of Christ. So we fight for justice, we stand for peace, and we do not lose hope in the fact that things don't look the way they ought to right now. We trust in a God who is at work in the church, at work in the streets, at work in our homes, and at work in every cross-section of life. And in conclusion, let me say this, the question today is not, is Jesus still Lord? Friend, he was Lord yesterday, he is Lord today, and he will be Lord tomorrow. The question for you remains, is this Jesus Lord of your life? Was he Lord of your life yesterday? Is he Lord of your life today? And will he be Lord of your life tomorrow? A Presbyterian pastor out of Nashville, Tennessee, posted this statement this week, and I want to end here today. This is my encouragement for you. That we cast our lot with persuading over shaming, listening over opining, courage over safety. 
truth over popularity and, and, and Jesus over partisanship and, and, and humility over assertiveness and, and serving over winning and live conversations over online mobs and costly justice over cozy suburban wokeness and kindness over outrage, forgiveness over resentment and love over hate. Yeah, today at, at 1 p.m., I'm going to march to City Hall. And it's a prayer march. I didn't say political march. I didn't say an all lives matter march. I said a prayer march to City Hall. Why? Because I believe prayer can carve a new path for our county going forward. And if nobody joins me, I pray by myself. And if the whole church joins me, then we can pray together. But I'm telling you, friend, we are in a moment, and whether we steward this moment well, we'll prophesy whether or not we can be effective in the next season. We're going to be people who stand for justice, and we're going to be a church that worships the Prince of Peace. And those two ideas come together in the person of Jesus, and he is more beautiful, and he is more colorful, and he is more fearful, and more in all and wonderful than we have ever imagined. And following this Jesus will cost you everything. It will cost your opinions. It will cost your political baggage. It will cost your family history. It will cost the worship of your ethnicity. It will cost the worship of your socioeconomic position. The worship of this Jesus will consume every other idol in your life. And my plea to you as a pastor is to continue to allow this consuming fire to do his best work in your life. This Jesus is worthy of worship. This Jesus, wounded by man but resurrected by God, is worthy of worship. This Jesus, who bears the mark of our sin and shame, has resurrected us unto new life. And this Jesus is worthy of our justice, and he is worthy of our peace. This Jesus, this Jesus, I'm going to end in prayer. We're going to end in a song. And at 1 p.m., we're going to leave here. We're going to march. The mayor let me know. He said, I'll be standing on the steps waiting for you. He said, let's pray together for our city. I didn't ask if you voted for him. I didn't ask if you agree with him all the time. I'm asking if you're willing to pray with leaders for our city. It's going to be a prayer march. And our church is going to prophesy every time we take a step, justice and peace. Justice and peace. Justice and peace. And we won't see it come to conclusion today. And it's not a one-time event that you sign up for and feel good about your own self. It is a daily, ongoing commitment to be the type of people that Jesus paid such a high price for. And we will live to see revival in the church and reformation in our city. We are those type of people. We are that type of church. And we're going to be these types of Christians. God, we pray today 
that you would do what you do best, not by our might or by our power, but by your spirit alone. God, that you would resurrect inside of us boldness and courage and peace and joy and love and hope. And God, we would be your church in this city. And God, I thank you that our battle is not against flesh, it's not against blood, but principalities and powers. And so we speak to the principalities and powers of injustice, the principalities and powers of racial hate, the principalities and powers of brutality. And we say, bow your knee at the name of Jesus. And to God be the glory, both now and forever in Jesus' name. Come on, friends, let's end in a song.